True Spirituality, Part 2, The Centrality of Death. The next three episodes will be closely related and have to do with the basic considerations of the Christian life or true spirituality. At the end of episode one, we refer to there being both a negative and a positive aspect of the Christian life. Let's look at the negative aspects summed up in the following four Bible verses. Romans chapter 6 verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Romans chapter 6 verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In these statements, we find that in God's sight, as Christians, we died with Christ when we accepted him as Savior and are called into a life of practicing a daily dying to certain things. These are concepts that sound foreign, not just to those unfamiliar with Christianity, but even to those who truly believe the message of Jesus, the gospel. The Bible gives us an intense negative indeed, one that can't be made just some sort of abstract religious idea, but that cuts right into the hard stuff of everyday life. The negative aspects we're highlighting here have to do with saying no to the dominance of things and of self. We read in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As we covered in the first episode, the Bible tells us that we are to love men in an authentic way so as not to envy. Loving our neighbor has a very strong negative aspect in that it entails saying no in certain very definite areas to certain things, which is a form of self-denial. We are to practice the willingness to say no to ourselves and to things in order that the command to love God and men may have real meaning. This represents a day-to-day or even moment-to-moment challenge for us due to the fact that our natural inclination is to focus on ourselves and what we want and not to deny ourselves. Since the fall of humanity, we are inclined to do everything we can, whether it is in a philosophic sense or a practical sense, to put ourselves at the very center of the universe. This is where we naturally want to live. And this is precisely the environment that we're saturated with in this age, isn't it? In our effort to live the Christian life, to engage in true spirituality, we must face this fact head on. Even as a Christian, I am prone to be focused on myself and my pursuit of things and my own victories, regardless of the cost to those around me, so it's inaccurate not to feel as if I were smashing against a wall when I consider the call to this negative. And if I stand in the normal perspective of fallen humanity, especially the normal perspective of our modern age, I will feel as if I am having a high-speed collision with the hull of a battleship. But if I shift my perspective, the whole thing changes. And that is what we are after here. 
to shift our perspective. The Christian perspective contained in the Bible is completely the antithesis of the world's perspective surrounding us, starting with the very nature of what is most real about the universe. The Bible teaches that there are two strands, the natural slash material, which is seen in a sense, and the supernatural, which is normally unseen. But since we are surrounded by and move within a fallen world, the pressure is on us to act solely according to the seen, which normally would be to not deny the self since the default is that placing myself at the very center of things feels right and seems to be the prerequisite for not just self-preservation, but to get as much out of life as possible. It's important to pause for a moment to clarify that following Jesus Christ is not an abandonment of pursuing and achieving excellence in all things. To the contrary, Christian teaching illuminates and provides a high-resolution view of who and what we are that should then extend to how best to thrive in all dimensions of living, which includes not only a heightened awareness of the ideals in terms of personal ethics and virtues, but the desire to practice them. This leads to both personal and communal growth and development. The difference lies in that all of this is viewed and then lived out in response to the reality that the Creator is not just there, but has made known His plan for how best to live as one made in His image and in relationship with Him through Christ. So when we step out of the world's perspective— and into that which aligns with biblical teaching regarding the kingdom of God, then we are faced with the challenges to think and live in the manner taught and exemplified by Jesus and the apostles that include the negative aspects we are talking about. With all this in mind, let's go even deeper using a passage from the Gospel of Luke as we read select verses in chapter 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So here Jesus uses a question to affirm his followers' belief in who he claimed to be and then touches on the very real, very intense implications of that belief. The central question facing humanity pertains to who is Jesus of Nazareth. Is he the Christ, the Messiah, who is, in light of the Bible's teachings, especially in the New Testament, the incarnate Son of God, God the Son, upon whom all relationship with God converges, or is he merely a rabbi, a sage, another prophet, or perhaps even an enlightened man or avatar of a divine force or consciousness? Here, as in numerous occasions chronicled in the Gospels and then echoed by the apostles throughout the New Testament, Jesus makes a set of startling truth claims, placing himself at the center of what it is for a person to have and then walk in a relationship with God. 
He is the Messiah whose coming suffering, rejection, and execution set the stage for his resurrection and ascension to the throne as a ruling king over a kingdom, God's kingdom. In fact, God's kingdom is understood in this context as having to do with the virgin-born, incarnate, suffering, rejected, slain, risen, and ascended Son of God establishing a movement of those following after him such that they are willing to die to self, take up the burdens associated with granting him authority in all things, and following him as a ruling king. And again, all of this involves nothing short of a renunciation of the right to self-rule, not seeking our own things, even if we have rights to them. Now let's read on in Luke chapter 9. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So here's an actual space-time encounter between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah that was witnessed by three of his followers, Peter, James, and John. It is referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration since Jesus undergoes a change in appearance or was transfigured. We see Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah about his coming death in Jerusalem and a voice commanding from out of the cloud, This is my son. Listen to him. This is a preview of Christ in his glory as reigning over the kingdom of God, which is a reality a person is pulled into after having trusted Christ as Savior. It is a foreshadowing of his coming resurrection that makes possible our resurrection as those who will be with him in his kingdom for eternity. This spectacular scene God the Son, having an interaction with legendary figures from ancient times, provides a perspective of reality that is completely at odds with that of the world on a number of levels. First of all, the man who claims to be the Son of God and God the Son, talking with the quote-unquote ghosts of recognizable people from centuries ago, is enough of a challenge for many. Let's face it, that alone can be a deal-breaker for anyone skeptical of the universe as an open system featuring a supernatural realm or entities. But it goes in another direction as well, which is not quite as apparent at first glance. The topic of conversation for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus was Christ's coming death. Just before Jesus began his earthly ministry to inaugurate the movement that included both his spectacular truth claims and miraculous feats, he was introduced by John the Baptist who said, and this is from the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's easy to miss the fact that by introducing him this way, he was directing consideration to Christ's death. How so? 
For Jews, the sacrificial lamb played a central role in the ceremonial observances and rituals that had to do with cleansing from sin through which a person could be forgiven by and in relationship with a perfect and holy God. Here then is the wonder of it all that is the true perspective, which is centered on one topic. The person who is God in human form, Jesus Christ, was to die. This is the one who talked with Moses and Elijah about his own coming death. The one whom the voice from the cloud declared, this is my son, listen to him. Here, God, as a true man after the incarnation, comes as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. This is the very center of the Christian message. Its center is not Christ's life, nor his miracles, but his death. This traces all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the first messianic promise was given, we are told that the Messiah, when he comes, shall be bruised. He'll crush Satan, but he'll take a hit in the process. Going further down in Genesis 3, we read in verse 21 how evicted humanity is clothed now that he has sinned. It is with the skins of animals, which requires the shedding of blood. In Genesis chapter 22, we read about the great event that shows Abraham's insight concerning the Messiah who was to come. His one and only son, Isaac, was to be placed on the altar as a sacrifice. And then a ram is supplied, giving us a double picture of substitution, Isaac as a foreshadowing of an only son being sacrificed as our substitute, and then the ram serving to save Isaac as his substitute. This theme continues throughout the centuries in the lead-up to the time of Jesus. In Exodus 12, 400 years after the time of Abraham and Isaac, we see the institution of the Passover as a key element of how Abraham's descendants were freed from bondage to Pharaoh's Egypt. This observance included sacrificing a lamb and placing its blood around the door frame of their homes, which is another foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the liberating and saving sacrifice. And he did so with his blood. Then around 700 years later and 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah prophecies about the coming Messiah and writes words such as, and I quote, wounded, bruised a lamb to the slaughter, cut off from the land of the living, poured out his soul unto death, unquote, as the center of the matter. Those are in chapter 53, by the way, Isaiah chapter 53. These words roll down through the centuries in prophecy after prophecy, and then we come to John the Baptist calling him the Lamb of God. The death of Christ is the subject of thousands of years of prophecy. The center of the Christian message is the redemptive death of Jesus Christ. Jesus places himself at that same center when he says, as recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He echoes the same in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The apostle John then notes parenthetically that he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Other passages worth noting. 
Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. We could go on and on looking at numerous passages featuring this theme. Even in the theology of the early church in the years right after the apostolic age, the substitutionary death of Christ is equally the center. From the time of the fall and the first promise after the fall took place until the very end as described in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, what is central in the Christian message of the good news, the gospel, is the redemptive death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the death of the Lord Jesus is absolutely unique. It is substitutionary. There is no death like Jesus' death. There is no parallel death to Jesus' death. This must stand as absolute in our thinking. His substitutionary death on the cross in space and time in history had infinite value because of who he is as God. That means nothing needs to be added to the substitutionary value of his death, nor can anything be added. He died once for all. Having said that about as forcefully as it can be stated, it's also true that we find Jesus establishing a chronological order. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22 that we read earlier, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So we see the order is in three steps, rejected, slain, raised. This refers to his coming unique and substitutionary death, yet this order, rejected, slain, raised, is immediately related by Jesus Christ himself to us, his followers. In verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Here Jesus takes this order that was so necessary for our redemption in his substitutionary death and applies it to the Christian's life. The order, rejected, slain, raised, is also the order of the Christian life of true spirituality. Jesus is talking here about our death by choice in the present life. He then applies it to a specific situation to make it most concrete. Jesus says, as recorded in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
Jesus, in the words of the Bible in general, does not speak in terms of some romanticized version, some idealization, or some abstraction. Jesus carries this concept of facing the rejection, being slain, down into a very practical situation, facing an alien world. It is saying no to self when our natural selves would desire acceptance by the world, a world in open rebellion against its creator and our Lord. A world that not only rejects, but mocks God's created order, his plans for living, and the need to repent of the revolt we've all been caught up in at some point prior to accepting Christ as Savior and Lord. What is being presented to us here is the question of the Christian's mindset in all of life, and the order stands, rejected, slain, raised. As Christ's rejection and death are the first steps in the order of redemption, so our rejection and death to things and self are the first steps in the order of true and growing spirituality. Just as in Christ's redemptive work required rejection and death before it consummated in his glorious resurrection, so in the Christian's life there can be no further step until these first two steps are faced not in theory only, but in some practical manner, rejected, slain. Our ongoing moment-to-moment challenge is to avoid being saturated and overwhelmed by the world with its attitudes and perspectives rather than those of God's kingdom. Not that we live only in the negative aspect, as we'll see as we advance along in this series of studies, but it is important that we have an understanding of the proper order, We can't just rush ahead to the last step without the reality of being rejected and slain. With this in mind, let's finish with a very brief look at the negative aspects of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The first commandment is the call to say a strong negative toward wanting to be in the place of God. This is the key to the whole thing, wanting to be at the center of the universe. We are, by choice, to die to this. We are, by choice, to die to the time God has kept for himself, his special day, the Sabbath. We are to say a strong negative toward grasping any authority that is not properly our own. We are, by choice, to say no to taking human life. We are to reject the concept of taking anything, including sexual things, which are not rightly ours. And we are to say no to destroying, by false accusation, reputations that are not ours. The last commandment, you shall not covet, shows that these negatives are related not just to outward behavior, but also to inward attitudes. Here is our death in reality, and this involves some pain. Indeed, there are splinters in the Christian's cross as we are immersed in this present life in an atmosphere completely at odds with the kingdom of God. What we are concerning ourselves with in this study has to do with the fact that even though we have been justified once and for all, the guilt is gone when we accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, there is a moment-to-moment reality we have to contend with. We are in an alien world built upon man's rebellion against God, and in this life, even the Christian is not yet totally free from the elements of this rebellion within himself. 
the reality of walking in true spirituality, the Christian life, involves a radical saying no to self and to the world's way as it maintains its alien stand in revolt against the Creator. This involves facing the cross of Christ in every dimension of life with my whole self. The cross of Christ is to be a reality to me, not only once for all at my conversion, but throughout my life on a day-to-day basis as a Christian. This is true spirituality, and it is this that we are looking into in the hope that we can better live it out.